Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We've ended the last section by, I hope, conclusively showing you that everyone in the human race is condemned by sin. Even those who think they're doing so good or of Jewish heritage or have been trying to keep the law have not kept it to their justification. And remember, justification is a word that means declared righteous before God. We carefully say declared righteous and not made righteous. In other words, when a, in a court of law in your country, when someone is declared not innocent, it doesn't mean they're not innocent in everything in their life. They'll probably, many will go back and do the same thing again. But in the eyes of the law, they're declared not innocent. And so what we're going to find is that what well, the word is used here, at least for now, in that judicial sense in which a person can be declared not guilty before God or declared right in the eyes of the law. So in this section then we're talking about grace as the cure, so to speak, for sin. And going back to our outline, we're entering a section in 20, verse 21 of chapter 3, sin and our salvation using the word salvation in the sense of that once and for all justification saved from the penalty of sin. So how acceptable does grace make us in the eyes of God? As we've seen, we're all under sin. We all deserve to be separated from him. That's, that's called death. And yet God will not leave us there. He meets us there. And so we pick it up in verse 21. Verse 21 changes the narrative of the Bible, changes the narrative of Paul's theology, it changes the narrative of human history, and it begins like this. But, did your Bible say that? But, now let's just pause and think about that. When we read the word but, as Bible students, we know there's a contrast in view, correct? And usually those contrasts can be insignificant somewhat, but this is a contrast of what God has done as he steps into human history and interrupts this downward spiral of sin. But now, but now, God has done something for us. What did he do in this long slide that we've been seeing into darkness and depravity and distance from God but now God steps into human history and it says the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets in other words the law and the prophets all looked forward to this final full righteousness of God that would be available to us How is it available to us? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. No difference between Jew and Gentile because look what he says, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no difference between 
the Jews and the Gentiles before God, everyone has sinned and broken his standard. And that's what the word sin means. It means to miss a mark, fall short of a standard. If you're a hunter like I am, I hunt with a rifle usually these days, but I used to do a lot of archery hunting till my shoulder went bad, and, and every archer knows what it's like to miss the mark. Much easier to hit with a rifle, but it means the arrow doesn't hit the target. And that's basically what the word sin means. And when he says all have sinned, he's saying that we've all missed the righteous bullseye of God's perfection. We've missed the mark. As try, try as hard as we might, there's nothing we can do to be as good as God. If we were to all go out into the parking lot and have a contest to see who can jump the highest... Me and my metal knees would maybe reach about half a meter. Some of you young guys or women could maybe reach a meter. Some of you may high jump in high school or college competitively, and you could jump maybe, was it two meters? That, that's not unrealistic these days. And God would look down and say, oh, that's funny, and that's entertaining. They're trying so hard, look at them. Not coming close not coming close at all. We've all fallen short of the glory, the perfection, all that God is. But, verse 24, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, and thank God for it, being justified freely by His grace. Here's the word grace and how it bursts into human history and, and sinful theology and behavior the word grace comes to us, and we can be justified or declared righteous before God by grace. Now, what is grace? There's many ways of describing or defining grace. Essentially, it comes from the word gift, so it means a free gift. Now, if it's a gift or if it's free, it means there's nothing you can do to earn or deserve it or pay for it, right? If I give my wife a birthday gift, I don't give her a bill also unless I want to sleep on the sofa. It's a gift. It's free, okay? Absolutely free. It's a gift. We need to say that these days because some people have wanted to redefine grace and say they talk about a cheap grace or a costly grace. Uh, in other words, they're saying you can't just believe in Jesus and be justified. You have, that would be cheap grace. Uh, you have to show, you have to pay for it with how you live your life. You have to earn it, in other words. And this is pretty much the same thing when they say costly grace. But the Bible never talks about cheap grace or costly grace. Those are what we call oxymorons, contradictory terms, like, like a small crowd or a jumbo shrimp or expressway. <laughs> the land of the orange cones is what I... Right? I've never seen so many in my life. I was starting to think it was a natural national flag. <laughs> They're everywhere. Just a part of driving, I guess. Expressway, no, not quite. Costly grace, cheap grace, the Bible never puts those words in front of it. There's only grace. It means the undeserved, totally free gift of God given to those who are sinners, if we talk about it in relation to salvation, given to us who are sinners. 
Sometimes I describe grace, or you want to use it as definition, you can, but it's grace is everything we don't deserve for anything we need, and even more. Grace is everything we don't deserve for anything we need, and even more. Well, first of all, it's undeserved, but it's here to meet whatever our need is, and that starts with our salvation. But that begins a Christian life that still needs to depend on God's grace and God's provision. And it needs to, we need to pray to Him and ask Him for the grace to pay a bill or grace to restore a relationship or grace to get well. So grace is a part of every part of life. It's not just something that we experience at salvation. Grace is God's way of communicating His love to us. You see, God could love the whole world like the Bible says. God is love. But it doesn't do us any good unless that love can help its object, us. How does he then communicate that love to us? It's through his grace that brings us a savior and that allows us to access his power for all of our needs. There's a hymn that we used to sing don't seem to sing it much anymore. It was called At Calvary. And it goes like this. Oh, the grace, oh, the love that grew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. You see, so grace is how God communicates his love to us. It's intimately related to the word love. But love by itself couldn't help us. Grace is how God gives us his love. So, being justified fully by his grace, or freely by his grace. I'm sorry, because that word freely is very important. It's in the Greek language. If the word grace means free gift, then why do we find the word freely there? That would be a redundancy, right? Well, when you have a redundancy or repetition in the Bible, what do we have? Something that is being Amplified, exaggerated, not exaggerated, but emphasized, okay? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What's he saying? God is really holy. Woe, woe, woe to the earth. What's he saying? Earth's in big trouble. Freely by his grace. Paul couldn't say it any more clear. And why does he want to say it here? Because he's just said that you can't earn your salvation by what you do. Because nobody's good enough or by keeping the law. It has to be freely by His grace. Absolutely, totally free. You can't do it by making a commitment to God, by making a bargain with God, by saying, well, Lord, I'll, I'll serve you. Will you give me your salvation? Or I'll keep the law. Will you give me your salvation? I promise to serve you with the rest of my life. I, make, I commit myself to you as Lord and master of my life. God doesn't make trades like that. Freely by His grace. You see, in a little while we're going to talk about Abraham. And three times in the New Testament, Genesis 15, 6 is quoted. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. It was imputed, righteousness was imputed to him. Why? He believed God. Faith. Nothing he did. In fact, to illustrate the freeness of that grace to Abraham we would go back and look at Genesis chapter 15 from where that verse comes, and there we find God making a covenant with Abraham. 
he had made promises to Abraham in chapter 12 that he would make a great nation of him and that from his seed or descendants the whole world would be blessed. But by chapter 15, Abraham's an old man and he doesn't have a, a descendant yet. He doesn't have a son yet. And so he turns to his servant, Eliezer, and says, I'm going to have to make, make you my, my heir. And God says, hold on there. Eliezer's not going to be your heir. I'm paraphrasing. Come outside with me and look, look up. And they look at the stars, and God says to Abraham, you see those stars? That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed God, and God accounted it to him, imputed it to him as righteousness. What was he believing God for? That there would be a descendant, many descendants, but a descendant who would be a deliverer for the human race from those descendants. He was believing God's promise of a coming seed or deliverer. And that seed is interpreted for us in Galatians chapter 3 by Paul as Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't know Jesus' name. He probably didn't know what Jesus was going to have to do exactly. But he knew that a deliverer was coming by God's promise. Well, you know the rest of the story. Even though he's as good as dead, he, uh, the Bible says he was, his body was as good as dead. He talked Sarah into a little experiment, and they did have a son named Isaac. At first she laughed, but they did have a son named Isaac. But let's go back to chapter 15. What happens after God shows them these stars and Abraham believes him? God says, okay, I want you to go get some animals and cut them in half, and let's spread the pieces apart. In other words, God was saying, we're going to make a covenant, a bereath. Bereath means to cut. We're going to cut a covenant. And the seriousness of that covenant is illustrated by these bloody pieces of animals because the implication is that when two people walk through these pieces of animals and they recite the conditions of, you do this, I'll do that, you give me your daughter, I'll give you my five donkeys, <laughs> ten, sorry. And if you don't do what you promise, it's going to be bad news. Well, what happened to Abraham? If you remember the story... God put him to sleep, didn't he? And God went through the pieces, symbolized by what, that smoking pot, flaming pot, smoking furnace. God went through the pieces and made the covenant. I will, he says. And he repeats that covenant over and over again throughout the book of Genesis to Isaac and Jacob. I will give you the land. I will give you the seed. I will give you that descendant. And Abraham's snoring. So what did Abraham do to bring the promise to us? Absolutely nothing. It was grace, that means unconditional, undeserved, unilateral covenant. It didn't depend on Abraham. Abraham messed up later. Isaac messed up later. Jacob the deceiver messed up later. Go on down the line. Judah messed up pretty bad. David messed up bad, but they were all given the same covenant, different aspects and expansions of it as they went along. Thank God my salvation and the blessings of God through Jesus Christ didn't depend on Abraham who was snoring or Isaac who repeated the sins of his father or Jacob who was a schemer or Judah who had an episode we don't even like to talk about with his daughter-in-law or David who was a known murderer and adulterer for a time. You see, salvation doesn't depend on them because they weren't perfect. And salvation doesn't depend on you and me either. When we believe in Christ as our deliverer, guess what? 
God does, there's nothing we can do to earn it, keep it, or deserve it. And that should be good news for you. That should take a lot of pressure off our shoulders. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 8. But the point is that we're declared righteous not by anything that we do, but by what's been done for us. We've been given a free gift. Every gift is free to the one who receives it. But here's the catch. It costs the giver. So we come to the second part of verse 24. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption speaks of a price that is paid, a purchase that is made. What was the price that was made? Jesus Christ. God paid for you and me with his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could give us the gift of eternal life. But now the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. You see why God might be insulted if you would say something like, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I also have to fill in the blank. I have to get baptized. I've got to join a church. I've got to clean up my life just to show that I'm a Christian or to earn my salvation or to prove that I'm a Christian. Rubbish. Paul uses that word in Philippians 3 when he talks about his own righteousness. He calls it scubula, rubbish. Excrement actually is what it means. If we think we can contribute to our salvation with our good works and our law-keeping, it's rubbish in God's eyes. In fact, it's insulting because we're saying to him, God, your son wasn't good enough. Didn't finish the job. Let me finish it. But God saves us totally, declares us justified, righteous in the eyes of the law. He doesn't put us on probation. Our salvation is final and full. And that's what Jesus meant when he said on the cross, it is finished. Tetelestai means paid in full. The sin debt has been paid. The bill has been paid. The prison sentence has been served. It's paid for. Tetelestai. So what can we do to add to that? Absolutely nothing. Isn't that great news? That's why this is my favorite verse, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Nowhere else can we find a full and clear redemption like we can through Jesus Christ. Now he goes on from there in verse 25, whom God, Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, it's these kind of verses that made me put off studying Romans so long. All these big words, what's going on there? It's not really that hard if we understand what these words mean. God put Jesus forth as a propitiation, a covering for our sins. Propitiation means that God's wrath is appeased. He's no longer angry at us because the payment has been made. So Jesus made that propitiation for all the world, 1 John 2, 2. He, uh, he's a propitiation for us and for all the sins of the world. He set him forth as a propitiation or a covering to satisfy God's wrath towards us by his blood or by his death that paid that price. And through faith, when we believe in him, to demonstrate his righteousness. See, God had to show that he was a righteous God. If he had not 
demanded the final price through his son Jesus Christ and kept putting it off forever and ever and ever and ever, then he would not be a righteous God. He could be accused of being unrighteous. And it talks about his forbearance or patience here. In his forbearance, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. Someone has said that at some point, patience ceases to be a virtue. Now, you understand how that might apply here? If God was patient with sin and never punished it, never punished it, never punished it, I'm patient, I'm a patient God, and it let it go on forever, and no punishment was ever made, then that ceases to be a virtue. If we have a child and we tell our child, you do that again, and I'm going to take away your video game. And you promise that, you make that threat over and over and over and over again. You don't really mean it. The child learns it and understands it as they so often do. And you are not really just or righteous or, or doing what you said. You're not displaying righteousness and your patience ceases to be a virtue. It actually becomes a vice because you're lying. Well, so what did God do? In his forbearance, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. You see, in, I think what Paul might have had in mind here is Jewish history, where to them was given, um, in Jewish history was given the sacrifices through the rituals to cover their sins on a yearly basis at least. Now, they could sacrifice for many reasons, but once a year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, a goat was sacrificed. Uh, the priest, the high priest, would confess his sins on the head of a goat, and that goat would be slaughtered. And a second goat would be released into the wilderness to run off, symbolizing two things: one, sin had to be paid for, and when it was, sin could be separated from us, at least for another year. And as long as Israel recognized and admitted their sin and displayed that faith through those sacrifices, God said, "Okay, good for another year." good for another year. I'll overlook your sins, but someday somebody's going to have to pay that price. Finally, I can't overlook it forever, you see. Now, back home, my wife and I, by God's grace, were able to buy a house. We have a house. We own a house. And I'm lying to you because you know who owns it? The bank owns it. They're just allowing me to lie to you until that final payment is made. And you know when that final payment is made? July 1st, as soon as I hit U.S. soil. Amen. Then it'll be our house. So Israel is able to say, yeah, we're redeemed, we're redeemed people, but it's only because God was overlooking their sin until that final righteous payment would be made, and he would demonstrate at the present time his righteousness so that he really could be fair or just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. There had to be the final payment. So there's only really two plans to be saved in God's eyes and be declared righteous. And the first plan is that I do it myself. I try to be good enough, reform myself. I try to keep the law. Or Jesus did it for me. It's been done. It's been finished. I'm really not oversimplifying it when I tell you there are only two religions in the world. Only two religions in the world. 
Because everywhere I go and everything I read, people are trying to earn their way. The Jews are trying to keep the law. The Buddhists are trying to walk the Eightfold Path. The Hindus are trying to do the Four Yogas. The Muslims, the Five Pillars. Go on and on and on. Everybody has a list. The lists are just different. Everybody has a list that's going to bring them into perfection or godhood or to God. Except for Christianity. Christianity is the only religion, biblical Christianity, is the only religion that says it has been done. It is finished. There's nothing left for you to do in regards to your acceptance with God. Isn't that amazing? You see, that's, that's the Christianity we ought to try to protect and preserve because people are trying to change the language of faith and change what grace means and all these things that end up putting our works into the gospel. But grace is free. And we've started this thing in America called the Free Grace Alliance. We have to say free grace because we want to uh, declare ourselves different from those who talk about other kinds of grace. There's only one kind of grace. It's free grace. Some people say, well, why do you have to call it free? Grace is always free. It's because people get it confused. Why do we have to say the inerrant word of God? Because there's some people who call it the word of God but think it's got errors in it. So we use the word verbally inspired plenary inspiration of God. We add all these words in theology to tell people what we think about God's word. It should be enough just to say God's word. It should be enough to say grace, right? But we have to define it as free grace. And Paul did it, so there's nothing wrong with that. We are saved by the free grace of God, not by anything that we do. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, some theologians were in a debate about what made Christianity distinct from other religions. And he walked into the room and they said, they said uh, Lewis, we're just having a debate here. What do you think makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world? He says, oh, that's simple. Grace. If there's nothing else you get from this winter Bible school, I want to hammer that into your head. It's the free grace of God that makes our gospel different from every other message in the world. And you should rejoice in that. Unless you're trying to work your way to heaven, then you've got a problem. Unless you say, well, I've got to reform myself. I've got to do better. I've got to get baptized. I've got to join church. All those things are good, but they don't earn you a righteous standing before God. So, God demonstrated his righteousness by the death of his son. And he goes on to say, where there's the boasting then? The obvious answer to the question is there's no boasting. If God did it all, what can I brag about? If God gave his son, how can I brag about my two pennies worth of goodness? Is it excluded by the law or of works? No, but by the law of faith. The principle of faith is what he means. The word law can be used in different ways. The principle of faith excludes works and the law, and he'll explain that more in chapter 4. And we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And that's true of Jew and Gentile alike. Now we come to chapter 4 and he wants to use Abraham as an example. And we've already talked about him a bit, but he asks the question, what shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh or in his humanity? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, implying, I think, that he could be, but, read on, it was not before God. Abraham be justified by works before other men. And if you read James chapter 2, it says Abraham was justified by works because they called him a friend of God. So what does it mean in James 2? This is a whole different Bible study, but in James, just to clear that up because there's so much confusion, Abraham was justified works before other men because they saw that he was obeying God in willingness to sacrifice his own son. But that didn't justify him before God. So here it's saying, yeah, he could have been justified by works, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. There's Genesis 15, 6 for you. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now here, works and faith are contrasted. And so you can either work for your salvation, and then God would owe you a wage, a paycheck. But you know what? God doesn't pay wages when it comes to salvation. But if we could work... He would owe us a wage, but that's not what faith says. Faith just receives what he gives us, not what we work for, but what he gives us. So it's not to the one who works, but the one who believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, who has his faith counted as righteousness. So to believe means to be convinced or persuaded that something is true. I like to picture it as an empty hand. It's the one who God, comes to God with an empty hand and receives the free gift of eternal life. That's the one who is justified before God. We don't come to God bringing things and say, look what I did, look what I did. No, we just receive. And that's what grace is all about. And that's what he's trying to explain, and he's using Abraham as an example. Important that we understand he's using Abraham as an example because Abraham was uh, considered the father of the Jews, the beginning of the Jewish people. He was uh, justified in Genesis chapter 15, 6, before he was circumcised in Genesis chapter 17, some 14 years later, which is telling us that he was not saved by the law, and the law didn't come until 400 years later. And he wasn't saved by circumcision, which came 14 years later. He was saved by faith, believing God, in Genesis chapter 15. And he was a perfect model for writing this book of Romans because the congregation included both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, of course, is trying to show them that they're unified as sons of Abraham through faith. We are all Abraham's seed through faith, Galatians argues more extensively, because Abraham was represented both Jew and Gentile. And then he uses David as an example also in chapter 4. As he goes on in verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. I think that is from Psalm 32, a psalm where David is describing the terrible effects of his sin against God with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband, Uriah. And if you read Psalm 32, you find it's a, it, it, it sounds like he's just going through death itself. His spirit is all dried up. His body, is, his bones are groaning. 
I mean, he's a mess. Spiritually, he's a mess. Even physically, I think. We could take it literally. He's a mess. That's what sin does to even believers like David until he gets the release of Psalm 51 where he confesses to God his sin and says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He doesn't say restore to me my salvation. He says restore to me the joy of my salvation. You mean, David, God kept you saved through murder and adultery? Well, he dried up his spirituality. He put great physical agony upon him. The weight of guilt was unbearable, according to David's testimony. But he didn't need his salvation restored. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sounds amazing to us that God's grace would reach that far in somebody who had done such wickedness. But we will find out later that we cannot outrun God's grace. And then in verse 9, he continues the discussion with Abraham. Uh, this blessedness doesn't come upon the circumcised or Jews only, but also upon the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, obviously, we said he became a believer while he was still uncircumcised, so it wasn't due to his circumcision. Circumcision was a sign that, that uh, uh, you were keeping uh, an agreement with God of some kind. It later became a symbol for keeping the law, but they didn't have the law yet. And then I, let's go down to verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, God couldn't promise an heir to fulfill Abraham, his covenant with Abraham. Not through the law, but it had to come through faith. Because if it depended on the law or what Abraham did, it would never happen. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. And the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. But where there's no law, there's no transgression. So apart from the, God's salvation and righteousness is revealed apart from the law. Remember chapter 3. So verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. See, the only way to access grace is through faith not through performance or earning it or keeping the law. It's always through faith. If you look ahead at chapter 5, verse 2, which I don't know we'll get to this hour, but he says, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace. So the door to getting God's grace to meet every need is always faith. We have to trust him for it. You don't work for grace. So... Um, where'd we leave off? According to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to also those who are of the faith of Abraham. So not just to the Jew, but everyone who believes in Christ becomes a son of Abraham. But you notice what he says, the only way it can be sure is through faith, not by the law. In other words, not by human performance. Nothing can depend on me. If my salvation depended on my performance, I'd probably lose it before the day's over. And you too. 
So he says in verse 17, as is written, I have made you, Abraham, a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed God, who gives life to the dead because Abraham's body was as good as dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, that's faith, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. That was the promise. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver. This is my favorite part. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what God, he, had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Being fully convinced, he didn't waver at the promise of God. When I look at my performance and how I'm doing, if I think about my relationship to God, I waver all the time. But when I look at what Jesus did, I don't have a thing to worry about. Reminds me of a story. You know, you've get, been getting a lot of rain here lately. <laughs> a lot of rain. There was a little boy, and he was out fishing. He got stuck on a rock in the middle of the river, and the river swelled up around him. And he couldn't leave the rock. They found him the next morning, and he was cold and shivering, but alive. And they said, were you scared? He said, I may have shivered on the rock, but the rock never shivered under me. When we look at our performance, when we look at how we're doing, it's like that. We want to shiver. But when we look at how Jesus, on what Christ has done, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Our salvation rests securely on what Jesus did. He is the rock. No matter how I feel, no matter how I doubt, no, no matter how I might sin, if I stand on Christ in his righteousness, I'm on the solid rock and I am delivered. Does that make sense? Amen. Now he goes on and says in verse 23, Now it was not written for his sake alone, but that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He goes on in chapter 5, which we really don't have time to dig into very much, but he starts with the word therefore, which he shows us he's drawing some conclusions. And in chapter 5, he wants to talk about the results of our justification. And because of our justification through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this verse, I think, is sometimes misunderstood as, oh, yeah, he's given me this peace in my heart. And indeed, that often does and can and will happen. But I don't think he's talking about a subjective inner peace. He's talking about an objective peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. The wrath of God, remember, is being poured out upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But when we have Jesus as our Savior, we're at peace with him, and he's at peace with us. I think that's what this verse is saying. Excuse me. And it gives us the grounds to have personal peace. Through whom we have access by this grace, by faith, into this grace in which we stand. That's a positional truth. We're standing in grace. 
We're standing on the rock. And we can access more grace anytime through faith. And that gives us, we can rejoice in hope. Hope meaning an expectation, a faithful expectation of the future. It doesn't mean I wish, but we, we have hope. In other words, we are looking forward to what God has for us. And we have, uh, in which we stand rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we can glory in tribulations. And he'll talk about chapter, and at the end of chapter 8, we'll talk about that. Why can you glory in tribulations? Because God's not going to desert you no matter what you go through. No matter how hard life becomes, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, tribulation is actually good for us because it teaches us to persevere. The word means to bear up under pressure. And that produces character, you see. Character comes from the hard times in life. And when we learn to appropriate God's grace in those hard times, it builds character, and that character produces more hope or a greater expectation of what God's going to do in the future. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Now there I think we have a subjective issue. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts, but it's through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so... When we were out strength in due, time, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know why Jesus died for the ungodly? Because there wasn't any godly. For scarcely will a righteous man, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. In other words, a righteous man, somebody who does everything right, somebody might be willing to die for that person. You know, the guy who, your neighbor who, lives an upright life, keeps the law, provides for his family. He's a righteous man in the sense that he does things right. You might die for him. But for a good man, perhaps some would even dare to die. Now, a good man is different a little bit from a righteous man. A righteous man does everything right, but a good man does everything good. So he's not just your neighbor, but he'll mow your lawn for you when you're out of town. And he'll feed your dog for you. He'll pick up your mail for you. He's a good man. He'll bring you a meal when you're sick. A righteous man not, wouldn't necessarily do that. So you have a good man, and someone might even die for a good man, but Jesus, he died for bad people. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. We were going the opposite way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's taken the chastisement for our sins. We're all placed on him upon Jesus Christ. He died for us when we were sinners. That's how he demonstrates. That's how we can know he loves us. Don't ever feel God doesn't love you because of your sin. He, he loves you because of your sin. Not in spite of your sin or despite your sin. Much more than, now look at verse 9 and 10, which I think are very important verses. Much more than, having been justified by his blood, past tense with present conditions, having been justified or placed in a new position before God, we shall be saved. Now here's that future use. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Now we've been saved from the penalty of sin, but we've still got to deal with the sinful natures inside of ourselves and God still gets angry at sin. So how do we preserve ourselves from that present anger of God that is being poured out on sin, even in Christians as well as non-Christians? Well, we're saved by his life. 
is what we will learn as we read on, um, especially in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, 6 and 8. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The future tense, saved, we shall be saved by his life. So this is kind of a transition here where Paul's leaving the discussion of justification and moving into sanctification. In other words, we've talked about grace and our sin, and then we talked about grace and our salvation, more precisely, justification salvation. Now we're moving into a discussion of sanctification, or grace and our sanctification, or more precisely speaking, our present salvation. We're being saved daily from the power of sin. Now Romans chapter 5 ends with the contrast between Adam and Jesus Christ, which essentially is saying this, that because of Adam and him bringing sin into the world, we have all sinned. And you say, that's not fair. I wasn't there. Yes, you were. Where did your DNA come from? You were in Adam, my friends. You know, Paul uses, not Paul, <laughs> the author of Hebrews uses that when he's talking about uh, Abraham and Melchizedek. And uh, when Abraham paid tithes till Mel to Melchizedek, uh, the high priest of Salem, uh, it says Levi was paying tithes through him. Well, Levi wasn't born until 400 years later. But he was in, because it says he was in Abraham's loins. Levi's genetics were in Abraham. Guess what? Your genetics were in Adam. So there's a number of ways in which we were there. We were there genetically, but also Adam was the head of the human race, so whatever he decided to do plunged us into the same circumstances and situation. If, let's use our country, the President of the United States declares war on another country, I as a citizen am at war with another country, whether I want to be or not, because he's the head, the President of our country is the head. So we were actually there, we're representatively there as following the head of the human race. And then we're there in actuality because we've all sinned. And that doesn't take long to manifest itself, even in the youngest baby. So however you want to slice it, we're sinners in, in Adam, is what he's saying. And you don't think that's fair? Well, then you won't like what comes next because he says in Jesus Christ we can all be made righteous. Well... That's not fair either, is it? Because we're made righteous or declared righteous by something we didn't do, what Jesus did. And it is given to us as a free gift, we who are sinners. That's not fair. But guess what? Grace is never fair. Thank God. Grace is never fair. So the contrast between Adam and Jesus is simply to show that Jesus undoes what Adam did. And that's why he's called the last Adam or the second Adam. God put Adam on this earth to rule the earth as his representative, we might say vice regent. That was his job, was to subdue and have dominion over the whole earth, and Adam blew it right away. And he forfeited the moral right and the moral capability or ability to rule the earth. And so Satan stepped in, and now he is the God of this age or the God of this world, and the whole lie, world lies under his sway. And that's why Satan could promise Jesus, says, bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. 
See, Satan is over all the kingdoms of the world. Now, God is sovereign in his rule. I understand that. But right now, this world is given over to Satan. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because Satan's in charge. So that was Adam's original design, but Adam messed up. So God had to bring another Adam, a second Adam, into this world who would resist the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Three different temptations we read about. And prove his righteousness and live a perfect life. And now he has the right of dominion over all the nations. As the Psalms will hear so often speak of. Jesus has that right. He proved it because he lived a life we could never live. And he died a death we could never die. Praise the Lord he did. And so now we can be restored to our God's original intention as rulers of this earth through Christ. I like to summarize the Bible with this simple statement. If you can improve it, let me know. But I've thought long and hard about it. God is working to restore creation to his rule through the coming, through humans or man, through the coming king in his kingdom. God is working to restore his rule through man, through the coming king in his kingdom. You see, we can't do it on our own, but in Christ, we will rule and reign as God intended us. And so Jesus undid all the trouble that Adam got us into. And that's where chapter 5, I just kind of summarized chapter 5 for you there because we don't have time to go through it in great detail. And when we come back, uh, we'll dive into grace and our sanctification or how we can live the Christian life according to grace. But because we have no merit before God, God saves us freely by his grace through the price that was paid by his son, Jesus Christ. I hope today that no one here feels like you have to continue to struggle and try to earn God's favor. You're not keeping the law well enough. You have to do this or that or say a certain prayer. My friends, it's faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is what you believe, not what you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.